Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 17, we're following the ministry of Jesus as he makes his way through what we call the Galilean ministry. In other words, in this whole area of Galilee, Jesus went from village to village, city to city, and he uh, taught and he had many encounters with people who needed some kind of miracle. We're going to see that kind of thing here this evening. Again, we're talking about the region of Galilee. Verse 17, now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. You know, there's a lot right in that first verse we're going to take a look at this morning, or this evening, verse 17. First of all, notice, Jesus was doing what it was his practice to do. He was teaching. Verse 17, as he was teaching, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by. Now, make no mistake about it, Luke does not tell us where this happened. But one of the great advantages of the Bible in having four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that you can compare Gospel accounts, and different Gospel accounts will fill in details that aren't in other Gospel accounts. And we don't know this from Luke, but we know it from Mark, that this actually took place in the city of Capernaum, which was basically Jesus' new hometown. He moved from Nazareth to Capernaum when he started doing his ministry. We also know that there was a synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus taught, and we also know that there was, uh, that was the place where Peter and his family lived. So there was Jesus doing his teaching ministry there in Capernaum. We don't know if he was teaching in the synagogue or nearby the synagogue or just out in the open air, but Jesus was doing his teaching work, and notice what was there. Their audience was made up of religious and spiritual leaders. Did you see it? Verse 17 says it, Pharisees and teachers of the law. And some of them had come from considerable distances. Please notice, people are coming from Judea and Jerusalem all the way up north to Galilee to hear Jesus teach. His work, his teaching and his miraculous work is beginning to attract a lot of attention throughout Israel. So the Pharisees were there. These were these religious leaders who were well-known they were there ready to hear something. If you notice, I like how he phrases it right there in verse 17. It says that they were sitting by. Isn't that kind of an interesting construction? Can you see that in your mind? There's some Pharisees. There's some teachers of law. And they're looking at Jesus and they're like, hmm, what's he going to teach us? What's he going to say? And they're almost just, they're ready to pounce upon him. If he should say one wrong thing, if he should go off on one wrong tangent, they're they're, they're judging it all very closely. Now look, part of this was good. Don't you think it was the responsibility of the religious leadership of Israel to say, hey, who's out there teaching? Are they teaching the truth? Part of this was good, but we all know that the degree and the, the attitude with which these religious leaders practiced it against Jesus was completely wrong. Those men were there for wrong motives. They were not there with open hearts to receive something from the word of Jesus. Rather, they had a censorious spirit. They had a judgmental spirit. They they had the heart that just wanted to just grind Jesus up and spit him out. And let me tell you, if you come, you're likely not to receive much if you have that kind of attitude under the listening of the word of God. But it makes me think. Makes me think as we gather here on a Wednesday night. Makes me think as we gather on a Sunday morning. When I look out upon people that I'm teaching, I wonder how many of them are just sitting by. You know, who knows why they're there? Maybe they're sitting there with a very just sort of judgmental spirit. Let me tell you when I think about that, when I think about people sitting with a bad attitude, 
with a judgmental spirit. They're ready to pounce on something wrong, I might say, or a word I might mix up. The first thing that comes to my mind is this. I'm so glad they're here. I really am. Because even if you're sitting by, even if you're there with the wrong heart, you know what? God can get a hold of you, can't he? God can speak to you. And, well, God was going to speak to these Pharisees, maybe not in the way that they intended, but look at what happened here, uh, starting now at verse 18. And behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. Now, please notice this. It's very interesting. Verse 17, at the end of it, tells us that very precious verse, that the power of the Lord was present to heal them, which is a tremendous reminder, isn't it? God was there in some special presence and some special attitude there that that there was just something remarkable happening, and you just knew that people were going to get healed. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know why you could say, couldn't you say that whenever Jesus was present somewhere, the power of the Lord was present to heal? Nevertheless, there was something about this occasion and similar occasions in Jesus' ministry where you would just look at it and say, yes, now's the time. God's doing something special right here, right now. And everybody knew it. So much so that now, as Luke develops the story, now we realize that Jesus was teaching inside of a house. He wasn't in the synagogue. He wasn't in the open air. He was in a house. And as he's teaching, what happens? Some men start taking apart the roof. There's like palm fronds and branches laid over the roof, over a system of, you know, sort of lattice and tiling and such like this. They take it apart. They set it aside. There's like a skylight opening up in front of Jesus, right where he's teaching. And what do they begin to do? They begin to lower down before him a paralytic so he could be healed. But that's quite a way to interrupt a message, isn't it? Wouldn't that just be the best thing ever? If somebody's teaching right now, somebody like me teaching... And then a paralytic gets lowered down right before them, saying, please, please heal this person. What a remark. I mean, what a strange occasion. Now, by the way, you've got to admit, this, this showed something really wonderful about the four men who lowered their friends down. You, you can picture the scene, can't you? There's one with a rope tied to each of the four corners of the stretcher. And there they are with some strength lowering the man down, sort of haltingly. You, you doubt if they did it very smoothly. You know, it was one corner, one corner sort of floppy. And people gasp from the audience, oh, he's going to fall. He comes in and he finally lowers down before Jesus. And then there's four guys. Each one of them are holding onto the rope. Now, I'll tell you, they had faith because they did not want to haul that man back up. Their whole anticipation was that man would be walking out of that house. Not that they would have to haul them back up. And so they laid him down right in the midst, right there in front of Jesus. By the way, when he's talking about these four men who do it, these are men who loved that man on that stretcher. Think about it. If you you have the gift of having four friends like that, four friends who would extend themselves out and love you that much, you are a blessed man. You are a blessed woman. Charles Spurgeon said something really wonderful about the quality of those four friends. This is what he said. He said, they need be strong for the burden is heavy. They need be resolute for the work will try their faith. They need be prayerful for otherwise they labor in vain. 
and they must be believing or they will be utterly useless. Friends, I don't think it's wrong, I don't think it's selfish for you to pray, Lord, why don't you give me some strong friends, some resolute friends, some prayerful friends, and some believing friends. Now, you and I, we, we say that, and I don't know, does it stir a little thing in your heart? And you go, oh, Lord, you know, why don't I have more friends like that? Well, let me just challenge you. Who are you a friend like that to? I guess the way to get more friends like that is for you to be more of a friend like that to somebody. So just file that away. Remarkable thing. This is four men didn't. You can just imagine what a crazy scene it was in the midst of that house. Now look at verse 20. It says that when he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now do you get the scene here? Jesus didn't look at the paralyzed man's faith. He looked up at the four men who lowered him down. He looked at their faith. He got a great big smile on his face. Then he looked down at the paralyzed man, and this is what he said. He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, the first thing he did is, notice, he said that he saw their faith. There's something really wonderful about true faith that can be seen. We don't often think that way, do we? We usually think that faith is something so immaterial, so non-substantive that you can't actually see faith. But I would argue just the opposite, and I think Jesus would inform us of this too, that real faith can be seen. You can see it when somebody lives by faith. And these men, their faith was actually being demonstrated by the fact that they lowered this man down in front of Jesus. And there it was. That man lowered down, and Jesus was willing to do something in the life of that paralyzed man through the faith of those four men who were up there. Now, this is really remarkable, because it doesn't tell us a thing about the paralyzed man's faith. Who knows? Maybe he had faith, maybe he didn't. But in this particular instance, it's completely irrelevant. I read this sometimes, and I don't know, I'll get a little personal makes me angry sometimes. Not angry at Jesus or angry at this situation. It makes me angry at some of the faith healers that I see on television. And I'll tell you why it makes me angry. Because of some of the faith healers I see on television, when somebody doesn't get healed under their ministry, they blame the person for not having enough faith. I, I mean, I've seen children in wheelchairs get blamed for not having enough faith. Well, this is what I want to say to, to what I believe those insensitive, and believe me, I'm not, do I need to say that? I'll say it just so we, we were clear on this. I believe God heals. I believe God may have a healing for you tonight. I, I am pro-healing. But, but I think anybody with, with an ounce of spiritual discernment will at least at times be grieved by some of the theatrics that go on under the name of these faith healers. Well, what I want to say when they would blame some poor person for not having enough faith, I want to say, what about your faith, Mr. Faith Healer? This paralyzed man was healed not because of his faith, but because of the four friends' faith. Why don't you have the faith on behalf of this person? And it just goes to show us that God's miraculous work, it isn't like working, you know, a vending machine where if you put in the right quarters and pull the lever, it comes out. 
And look, we need to believe God, and we should believe Him to do more healing, not less. We should believe Him to do more amazing things and not fewer amazing things. But, but it's not something that anybody can figure out. We just believe God and trust Him and see Him do wonderful things in our midst. Well, I, I just noticed this. I know I'm off on a little bit of a tangent. I want you to notice what Jesus said to the man, verse 20. He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, I think this is the best thing in the world. Are you picturing this scene in your mind? Can you picture the four friends? What are they thinking? They're shouting out. I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't actually say it. No, he's paralyzed. That's his problem. <laughs> it's like, Jesus, if you've not figured this one out, you think his problem is it. No, he's paralyzed. Once you have to address that, fix that. Listen, Jesus knew what the man's real need was. He knew what this man's greatest need was. Now, I believe that God wants to do wonderful and amazing things with these bodies that he's given us, with this life that he's given us, with the people that we love. He wants to work in powerful and miraculous ways. But ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what you believe your greatest need is, but I'll tell you what your greatest need is, whether you feel it or not. Your greatest need in this world is to have your sins forgiven. That is your absolute greatest need. Because you could have everything else. You could have all the riches that this world could give you. If your sins aren't forgiven you, it means nothing. You could have perfect health and just be the picture of health until you die at a ripe old age in your sleep without a moment of pain or agony. If your sins aren't forgiven you, you're in a lot of trouble. You could have a great family life with children that love you and everybody gets along and it's a smooth, harmonious arrangement. And all of those things that I just mentioned to you are blessings. It's a blessing to have material things. It's a blessing to have good health. It's a blessing to have a peaceful and loving family. But without the forgiveness of sins, all of those things perish and they perish very quickly. Jesus knew this in this man's life. And so he looked and said, your sins are forgiven you. Now notice what the response is starting at verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? I love this. I love this because apparently the teaching that Jesus did there on that day in Capernaum, in that home, it wasn't provocative enough. It wasn't giving the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, something to stand up and say, I object to. So Jesus said, I've got to ratchet it up here. I've got to cause a little controversy. These religious leaders, they're not mad at me yet. What can I do? And so Jesus deliberately engineered this situation. Not that he arranged the men to lower, but when he saw the opportunity, he said, I know what will get them going. I'm going to forgive the man's sins. And they responded with just sort of this holy outrage. He said, no, only God can forgive sins. Now let me tell you, friends, those religious leaders were precisely right. Only God can forgive sins. You need to understand that. And if you believe that, it would change a lot in your life. Listen, if you've sinned against another person, it's very important for you to have that person's forgiveness. And there's probably some people in this room, you probably need to do that. You have unfinished business with other people in your life, and you desperately need to go to them and ask their forgiveness. But don't you dare neglect to ask God's forgiveness as well. Because at the end of it all, only God can forgive sins. Here's another idea. You can't even forgive your own sins. Now listen, I understand that there's an important place to come to in your own heart and mind where you receive God's forgiveness and you stop trying to punish yourself or make yourself atone for your sins. But at the end of it all, you can't forgive yourself. 
Only God can forgive you. And the bottom line is that what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, he purchases the forgiveness of sins for all who come to him by faith. Only God can solve our sin problem. We can't forgive ourselves, and we can't, in an ultimate sense, grant forgiveness to other people. Nevertheless, God can forgive our sins. And so they're all outraged. The, the, the religious leaders are having a case of the vapors. Who is he who thinks he can forgive his sins? Who is this man? So verse 23, Jesus really throws it down to them. It's remarkable. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus spells it out so plainly, so brilliantly. He is the Messiah of God. He looks at the religious leaders and he says, you don't believe that I have the power to forgive sins. Okay, I get it. You can't see that I am God, but that's who I am. I'm not just a man. I am the Messiah. I am the God-man. You don't believe that I have the authority to forgive sins, but let me demonstrate to you that I have the authority to forgive sins. Which is easier? To say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Because theoretically, theoretically, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because nobody can actually see if that transaction takes place. But they can see whether or not the man can get up and walk right away. But in the ultimate sense, it's much more difficult to say your sins are forgiven because that's something that God alone can do, and that's an even more precious thing than being healed from paralysis. So what did Jesus say? He said, I'll do both. Your sins are forgiven. Now get up and walk. It's a beautiful thing. You could say that it was harder to heal the man to forgive his sins but because forgiveness is invisible. No one could verify at that moment whether or not the man was forgiven. Nevertheless, Jesus made it very clear. You are forgiven and you should walk. Verse 24, he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man did it. And what happens in verse 29? Excuse me, uh, this is verse 25, I should say. Verse 25 tells us, immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And all were amazed, and they glorified God, and they were filled with fear, saying, we've seen strange things today. (laughs) Can you imagine the tension at the scene? The man's lowered down. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders are indignant. Jesus says, which is easier to say to the man, your sins are forgiven, arise up and walk, and then I don't know, I just, in the movie that runs in my head, Jesus just milks it for a little pause here. He lets the tension build. And could you imagine the tension in the room? The disciples are tense. They're like, what's Jesus going to do? The religious leaders, they're so tense, they're about ready to have a stroke. The, the veins are burning. What's he going to do? The poor paralyzed man on the bed, he's tense. He's like, what's going to happen to me? And maybe most of all, the four friends up on the roof, their tents are like, would you hurry up? We can't hold this guy much longer. The only one in the room at perfect peace was Jesus. And with a great big smile, goes, your sins are forgiven. Rise up and walk. What does it say? Immediately the man did it. Immediately he arose. He took up his bed. He went to his house. Now imagine what had happened in this situation if Jesus had failed. I know it's an ugly thing to think about. We don't like to put Jesus and failure in the same sentence. 
but just imagine, theoretically, what if Jesus had failed? What, what if he had done this and it didn't happen? That the, the crowd would have slowly made their way out of the house. The scribes and the religious leaders would have smiled and they would have said, he can't heal or forgive sins. And the, the, the four men would struggle to pull up that paralyzed man. And the homeowner, the homeowner would have said, they tore apart my roof and nothing good happened from it. But Jesus never fails, does he? Jesus' beautiful demonstration of his power. He did not fail and he could not fail. The same word of authority that could say to that man, rise up and walk, is the same word of authority that could say, your sins are forgiven and everyone was amazed. Now listen, I know we've got to go back in our minds just a moment to the beginning of uh, Luke chapter 5, but if you sort of chart it out from Luke chapter 5, what has he done? Well, he's dealt with a paralytic, He's dealt with a demoniac, and he's dealt with a leper. Uh, What do you do if you're the Messiah, if you've dealt with a demoniac, a leper, and a paralyzed man, and a bunch of religious leaders? Now you're ready to take on a tax collector. Look at it right here. (laughs) Verse, Verse 27. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus said, okay, I dealt with the demon-possessed man, dealt with the paralyzed man, dealt with the leper. Bring it on, Mr. Tax Collector. He walks up to Levi, who's doing his business there at the tax collector's office, and he just simply says, you, you follow me. And this was a remarkable thing that Jesus would call a tax collector because tax collectors were absolutely despised in Jewish culture. I know they're not loved in our culture. You know, you got an appointment with the IRS. You don't put like a big heart around it there on your calendar. It's something that you dread. Nobody likes a tax collector. It's a terrible thing. But listen, tax collectors, if you, as bad as you think they are in our society, in Jesus' society, they were far worse. Because first of all, tax collectors were traitors. They were traitors because they were collaborators with the Roman government. They were Jewish people who were absolute traitors against their own people and collaborating with the Roman government. Secondly, not only were they traitors, they were thieves and extortioners. Because basically, the job of the tax collector was to get as much money out of you as he could. You say, well, what's changed with that today? Nothing's changed about that today. But here's the thing. He had to pay a certain amount to the Roman government, and whatever extra he got, that was his profit. So he had, and could you imagine what it would be like dealing with the IRS if they actually got to keep everything that they took from you? The individual IRS agent. You think you're afraid of them now. Wait till that moment. Well, that's how it was dealing with the tax collector in Jesus' day. It was so bad that tax collectors were not allowed in the synagogue. Tax collectors were out of the mainstream of Jewish society. And isn't it absolutely remarkable that Jesus walked up to this tax collector, he looked him in the eye, and he said, you, you follow me. I don't care that everybody hates you. I don't care that you're despised. I don't care that you probably have been taxing these very same Galilean fishermen because the fish that came out of the Sea of Galilee were taxed. Listen, I I can almost guarantee you that Peter and John had had painful experiences at that very tax table. I don't care. You you come and follow me. And what a beautiful thing that Jesus did there. 
And what did Matthew do? He said, you come and follow me. And it says right there in verse 28, he says, he left all. He left it all. And it was one thing for Peter and John to leave what they did. But when Matthew left his career, there's a very real sense in which there was no going back. We find at the end of the Gospels that the fishermen among the disciples went back to their fishing. Matthew couldn't go back to his tax collecting. To turn his back on that profession meant he turned his back on it forever. And so he walked away. And he, in a remarkable demonstration of commitment and following Jesus, he said, I'm leaving it behind and I'm following you. Verse 29, this is beautiful. Then Levi, nobody confused, Levi and Matthew, your names are the same fellow. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained with his disciples saying, but why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Isn't it wonderful? Matthew gave up everything to follow Jesus, but unless he, apparently he kept enough of it. I'm going to throw one last party for all my friends. And I'm going to invite Jesus and the disciples to this party so that they can meet Jesus. Excuse me, I'm going to, so that the, Jesus can meet all my tax-collecting friends. And so he wanted his friends to meet Jesus. He threw this great party. But notice it here at verse 30. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples. They complained that they were hanging out with these notorious sinners, these tax collectors and others like them. So what did Jesus do? He answered the objection by saying something very profound. You saw it right there in verse 31. Look at it again. Verse 31 says, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician. What Jesus said was very simple. At the same time, it was very profound. Jesus is the physician the doctor of the soul. And it makes sense for him to be around people who are sick with sin. What would you think of a doctor who never wanted to hang around sick people? He said, well, doctor, fine. I mean, I know health, healthy people can use your, your services as well, but don't you want to go out and mingle with some sick people at least some of the time? But Jesus said, yes, that's my calling. That's what's given for me to do. Now listen, what's interesting about this is that everybody could see that the tax collectors were sick with sin. That was evident. But did you know that the critics there, the religious leaders, they were also sick with sin? Just they didn't have it diagnosed in them. They couldn't see it within themselves. They thought other people were sick with sin, not themselves. And I just want you to think of this strange occasion here it is at this feast that Matthew gave, that Jared, there Jesus attended, that there were all these people sick with sin, and there was Jesus, the great physician, the one who can heal them of their sin. We already saw that he can forgive sins. And what? Many people there refused what Jesus had to give them. Isn't that strange? Why would a sick person refuse the services of a doctor? Why? Well, perhaps they don't know they're sick. That's a big reason, isn't it? Don't many people who are actually sick with sin, they don't know that they're sick? But, but maybe they know they're sick. Maybe you know that you're sick, but you think you're going to get better all on your own. Isn't that why you don't go to the doctor? 
Many people are stubborn like that. I'm not going to mention names that I know, but there are even people near and dear to me. That's how they always think. They always think that way, that, okay, I'm sick, but I'll get better all on my own. Now listen, that might be true with many illnesses that we suffer. You and I know that it's not true when it comes to sin. Sin is a sickness that you won't get better of all on your own. Other people say, well, listen, I know I'm sick, and I know I need a doctor, but I don't know that there is a doctor who can help me. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, there is a doctor who can help you with your sin sickness. And perhaps you know that you're sick, or you know you need a doctor. Perhaps you know there is a doctor, but you don't really believe that doctor can help you. There are some people who really feel that way. Oh, sure, there's a doctor I could go to, but he can't help me. Listen, Jesus can help you. Or how about this? Maybe you know that you need a doctor. You know that you're sick. You know there's a doctor. You, you know that he can help you. But you don't know that the doctor wants to help you. Let me tell you, the doctor for your soul, he wants to help you. But you know, there's one reason on top of all this. Maybe you know it all. Maybe you know that you're sick. Maybe you know you need a doctor. Maybe you know uh, that the doctor can help you. Maybe you know the doctor wants to help you, but at the end of it all, maybe you just don't want to go to the doctor. Isn't that strange? For a person who suffers under that sickness to blame the doctor. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is the perfect physician of our souls. He's the perfect doctor. He's always available. He always makes a perfect diagnosis. He always gives a complete cure. And you know what? He even pays the bill. That is a perfect doctor. And so Jesus said, this is who I am. This is what I do. Now, one thing to remember here. There are few things that seemed more strange to the religious leaders of people, the religious leaders of Jesus' day than the way he hung out with sinners. And Jesus here explained his whole rationale why. I hang out with sinners because I am a physician for their souls. Now, I I know that there are people today, Christian people, people who are followers of Jesus Christ, who first of all try to justify unwise associations with their life at the same rationale. Well, of course I'm out at those hours and in those places and among those people. Of course I am. Jesus mingled with sinners as well. And let me tell you, it is absolutely true that Jesus mingled with sinners. And there's something wrong with the Christian life that isolates itself from any sinner. And I'll just be bold enough, I don't know of any specific examples, but if I'm talking to this many people, there's some of you who are doing that. There's some of you live in almost this hermetically sealed, no sinner chamber in your life where you just have it fixed, where you never interact with anybody who's not a believer already. That's not right. You should find a way with your life to rub some shoulders with people who don't yet believe. But here's the deal. When you do it, just make sure that you're around them as a physician and not as a sinner. Isn't that the whole key right there? Jesus was there to say, I've got a cure and I'm here to administer it. He wasn't there to say, hey, let's collect some taxes. That's the whole difference, isn't it? And these are difficult things in the Christian life because people want hard and fast rules. No, you can't be with this person. No, you can't go to that place. When the bottom line is this, 
That's the kind of thing that might be entirely okay with somebody who has the right mentality and the right spiritual maturity and that goes in there with the heart of a physician and the same activity might be completely wrong with somebody who has the heart of, I'm going to be a tax collector. This was Jesus' approach. Well, let's finish up the chapter here, starting now at verse 33. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now notice, Jesus is doing something very interesting here. Jesus is answering a question that was brought to him. Listen, it seems like the disciples of John are so much more ascetic than your disciples, Jesus. It seems like the disciples of John, they fast, they do all these rituals. So do the Pharisees. How come your disciples seem to have a good time? And Jesus says this, listen, they have a good time because I, the bridegroom, I'm with them. Now he's drawing on an illusion here of the Jewish wedding. And in the whole Jewish conception of the first century, and I think you could transfer it over to today too, but let's just say the first century, there was no happier day in a person's life than their wedding day. That was the best party ever. And Jesus said, that's what it's like when I'm around. I'm the ultimate bridegroom. I'm the Messiah. Shouldn't people be happy when I'm around? That's the point that Jesus is making. But if you notice here in verse 35, he says something that's chilling. After saying what he just said before, verse 35, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. Do you see, even here early in the Gospel of Luke, there's a dark note introduced. It's like if you were scoring this musically, you know that the music just went to a minor key there. It just got, just got deep. It just got solemn. Jesus is just saying, there's going to come the time when I am taken away from them. You know it. And things will be different then. All right, now to the end of the chapter. Verse 36. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Likewise, no one makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for they say, the old is better. Now, friends, look... I'll just be sure, I don't know a lot about wine and old and new and all the rest of it, but I can give you the point of what Jesus is saying here. The point is clear. You can't fit his new life into the old forms. And this explains why Jesus did not begin a reform movement within Judaism. Jesus didn't come and say, I'm going to keep all the old institutions of Judaism and just reform them and clean them up. Jesus said, no, I'm bringing something new. I'm going to institute something, and he explains this later, I'm going to institute something called the church, where both Jew and Gentile will come together in one new body. It's going to be a new wineskin. And some may prefer the new, some may prefer the old, and it's a funny thing because in Jesus' day, people tended to accept things just because they were old. Well, if it's older, it must be better. But you know, our age has the opposite bias, doesn't it? How does our age think? If it's new, it must be better. Well, friends, here's the point. Forget about new. Forget about old. Just look to Jesus. Jesus is better. 
And don't get caught up and say the first thing, well, is it old? Is it new? Is it the new wineskin that Jesus has introduced? Friends, Jesus came to introduce something new, not just to patch up something old. And I think some of you need to think about that for tonight, and it's a good place for us to close with this. You think about your life and the work that God is doing in your life. And some of you are thinking, God wants to do a particular kind of work in your life, and you've mainly been thinking of Him patching up something old. Maybe God wants to do something new. You've all you've been looking for, maybe you've been resisting the new and almost demanding that God patch up the old. Now, and I don't even know why exactly I've come to this point, but let's just trust that God has something to speak to somebody here this evening. This is God's word to you this evening. Forget about patching up the old. I've come now to do something new. I believe the Holy Spirit will speak that to some hearts here this evening. So, Father, why don't you teach us? We love you. We love your word. We, uh, we love that, Jesus, you came to do something new in our lives. And I want to pray especially, Lord, I want to pray in particular for those, Lord, their walk with you just feels stale. It just feels old. I pray, God, that you'd set them free from that and that you would help them to enjoy some of the newness and the freshness that, Lord, I believe is our birthright in Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. So, Father, come, do that. Do that in our lives here this evening. Bring to us your newness of life, not just to improve the old. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.